We're looking at Article 11 of the Belgic Confession this afternoon. The Holy Spirit is true and eternal God on page 58. We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son, and therefore neither is made, created, nor begotten, but only proceeds from both, who in order is the third person of the Holy Trinity, of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son, and therefore is the true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, this article is, of course, the complement of Article 10, which teaches us that our Lord Jesus Christ is true and eternal God. Uh, This one teaches us, then, that the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God. But the difference, the other difference between these articles is that In Article 10, we find some scriptural proof for the doctrine of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ, while in this article, we find no proof, no scriptural proof given for that. There's simply a statement of the doctrine here. Perhaps our fathers felt that having proved that Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, they, they felt that it was unnecessary to prove this doctrine. Certainly it's true anyway that if one believes that Jesus Christ is true and eternal God, it's going to follow uh, pretty easily and uh, naturally that one believes also that the Holy Spirit is true and eternal God. Nevertheless, we're going to add some scriptural proof to our discussion of this article this afternoon. So our, our two parts of our discussion will be uh, what the article has to say about the deity of the Holy Spirit, and then some scriptural proof for that teaching. The confession actually says, I think, uh, five things about the deity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It actually, you might say, says only one thing. The conclusion of the article in the last line, he is the true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us, and notice that's connected by the word therefore to the preceding. And the other four parts that we're going to be talking about then are the scriptural teachings that lead naturally to that conclusion. The first of the things, then, that the article says about the Holy Spirit is that he proceeds from the Father and the Son, and that this proceeding is from eternity. Now, when the confession talks about the proceeding of the Holy Spirit, the confession is talking, of course, about the unique personal property of the Holy Spirit, that which distinguishes him from the Father and from the Son. The Father does not proceed. The Father begets. The Son does not proceed. The Son is eternally begotten. But what distinguishes the Holy Spirit then from the Father and the Son is this personal property that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
Now, perhaps you know that there was a great controversy in the church um, about this doctrine of the what we call the double procession of the Holy Spirit. It was called the filioque controversy, and this filioque means in Latin, and the Son. And that was a phrase that was added to the Nicene Creed uh, by the church, the Western church at one point, over the objection especially of churches in the East. And this filioque controversy, the churches in the East held that the Holy Spirit proceeded only from the Father, and the churches in the West that he proceeded from the Father and the Son, But the result of this filioque controversy was a division in the church. That in 1054, I believe it was, the Eastern Church split from the Western Church so that we have today what we know as the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church in the West. This doctrine, however, is, I believe, a doctrine that the scriptures teach pretty clearly. And we're going to look at just a couple of scripture passages in connection with that idea of the double uh, procession of the Holy Spirit. The first is John chapter 15, verse 26. John 15, verse 26, when Jesus is talking about the helper, as we have it in this translation, the New King James translation, or the comforter, as you have it in the Um, King James translation, or even as some would say, the advocate. Uh, But when the helper is come, the verse says, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. There you have the idea very clearly expressed that he proceeds from the Father. But notice that the text also says that Jesus sends him, whom I shall send to you from the Father. So he proceeds from the Father and is sent by the Son. This is why we speak of a double procession of the Spirit. Another passage is Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. I'm sorry, not verse 4, but verse 6. Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. But again, you have, I think, the idea of a double procession there. God has sent forth the Spirit, but this Spirit is the Spirit of his Son. So that God sends forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So that's one thing that the article talks about uh, in the connection with the proceeding of the Spirit. But notice that it speaks of this proceeding of the Spirit as from eternity. We believe and confess that the Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son. Here is the argument for the deity of Christ. Like the Son's begetting, which is talked about in Article 10, 
which is eternal, according to the confession, the Holy Spirit's proceeding is eternal. He, therefore, um, partakes of that divine attribute of eternity. That's the first thing, then, that the confession says about the deity of the Holy Spirit. He proceeds eternally from the Father and the Son. The second thing is really along the same lines. You find it in lines 2 and 3 of the article, therefore neither is made, created, nor begotten, but only proceeds from both. You have again the doctrine of the Holy Spirit's procession and a further um, designation or description of what that proceeding means. He is neither made nor created nor begotten, but only proceeds from both. But I think the reason that this is included in the confession is that what we have here is a quotation from the Athanasian Creed, a very deliberate reference to Article 25 of the uh, Athanasian Creed. Uh, Article uh, 23, rather, Article 23 of the Athanasian Creed. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten, but proceeding. The same series of words is used here in Article 11 of our Belgic Confession. So I think the Belgic Confession is deliberately taking us back to the Athanasian Creed. And it says then two things. First of all, he's neither made nor created. That is, he's not a creature. He existed uh, at the time that the creation uh, was made by God. He existed in the beginning, just as our Lord Jesus Christ existed in the beginning, and therefore he is not made nor created. And he is not the Son. He is not the one begotten. So that's what those three words are. He uh, proceeds, but he is not made, nor created, nor begotten. Therefore, he is true and eternal God. The third thing that the confession says, that he is in order, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Now it may be that one's immediate response to that statement is uh, that there's some kind of subordination here of the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. He is the third person of the Trinity. The Father is first, the Son is second, the Holy Spirit is third. And this is the way we always talk, isn't it? When we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, we do not say the Son is the first person. We say the Father is the first person. We say the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And the confession says this too, who in order is the third person of the Trinity. But as we pointed out in connection with our Lord Jesus Christ, if we talk about a kind of subordination of the uh, Son of God and the Holy Spirit to the Father, that tends towards tritheism. And we don't want to fall into any kind of tritheism. They are co-equal and co-eternal, partaking equally of all the attributes that belong to the divine essence. Why then do we speak of him as the third person of the Trinity? 
And that's because, first, of their, of their personal properties. The father begets, or as the confession says, he's the cause, origin, and beginning of all things. The son is begotten of the father. He is the word, wisdom, and image of the father. And therefore, he's the second. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, and therefore he is third. And this is how their works towards us also become manifest. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son comes into our flesh, dies, rises from the dead, and ascends into heaven, and then sends forth his Spirit. In that work of salvation, therefore, the Father is first, the Son second, and the Holy Spirit third. This is why we speak of first, second, and third persons. So he is, in order, the third person of the Holy Trinity, without being in any way subordinate to the Father and the Son. And the fourth thing is that he is of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son. That is, he is indeed God. The third person who belongs to the one God, who is unity in Trinity, Trinity in unity, and who has the fullness of the majesty and glory of that one God. He is equal with the Father and the Son in these things. He is of the same essence with them. And therefore, he is the true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. So let's look then next at some scriptural proof. And I'm going to do the same thing this week that I did last week when we were talking about the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to look first at the Old Testament and then at the New Testament. But there is a great deal of material in the both Testaments about this deity of the Holy Spirit or material that implies the deity of the Holy Spirit anyway. And so we're going to, of necessity, limit our discussion here. And the way I want to limit it in the Old Testament is to look just at the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. There is plenty of proof just in those first five books for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin, of course, with Genesis 1, verse 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There are two things there that show us the deity of the Holy Spirit. First, he was like the Word in the beginning. In the beginning, God created And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Just as John says of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. So here we find in Genesis 1 verse 2 that in the beginning was the Holy Spirit. 
And the second thing we see there, of course, is that he is participating in the divine work of creation, a work which belongs to God alone. So that's the first passage. The second is Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. This is in connection with the Noahic flood, of course. And God says here in Genesis 6 that he's not going to always be striving with men. He has been striving with men up to this point. And he's been striving with men, for example, through Enoch, whom uh, Jude calls a preacher of righteousness, and through Noah, whose very act of building the ark was a condemnation of the world in which he lived. God was striving with men. He was, through these men, condemning sin and calling men to repentance and showing to them the way that they should walk. And they were refusing. And God says, I'm not always going to strive with men. There's going to come an end to my striving. And the end will be their destruction in the flood, which I am about to send. But notice how he says it. My spirit shall not strive with man forever. God's spirit working in Noah and in Enoch and others like them will not always be striving with men. That too is a divine work. The next passage is Genesis 41, verse 38. Genesis 41, verse 38. And this is in connection with Joseph's interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams and the advice that he gave to Pharaoh in uh, anticipation of those dreams being fulfilled. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And we don't know what Pharaoh understood there by that uh, statement that the Spirit of God was in Joseph. But nevertheless, he spoke accurately. It was God who had revealed the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams to Joseph as Uh, Joseph himself said, and it was God who had worked through by his spirit in Joseph so that Joseph could give Pharaoh wise advice. This was the spirit of God revealing to Joseph the word of God as it had come to Pharaoh in those dreams. The spirit of prophecy, in other words. Then in Exodus chapter 28, verse 3, Exodus 28, verse 3, God is instructing uh, Moses with regard to the building of the tabernacle, and he says to him there in that verse, So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister to me as priests. Now you notice that the word spirit is not capitalized there, so that apparently our translators took that to mean the spirit of man, a wise spirit than within these men. But I do not think that is correct, and I do not 
think that's correct here because if you go on, there are other references to this same work of God in these men in Exodus. Exodus 31, verse 3, for example, where he's talking about Bezalel, one of those men who uh, did this work. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. And there it's capitalized, of course. In wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. To design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of workmanship. This is the wisdom of God, then, that is being given to these men, and it is the wisdom of God being bestowed upon them by the gift of the Spirit of God to them. And you find the same thing again in Exodus 35, verse 31. Again about Bezalel, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship. This is the Spirit of wisdom, then. We've seen that Joseph had the spirit of prophecy. Here, Bezalel receives the spirit of wisdom. Numbers 11 is next. Numbers 11, verses 17, 25, and 26. Moses needed help, and God told him to choose 70 elders to help him in his work. And then God said to him, verse 17, first of all, then I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put the same upon them. So God gave to these 70 elders the same spirit of anointing that he had given to Moses, the Holy Spirit himself, who communicated to them then the gift of, of office, the authority to speak in the name of God and to lead in the name of God. And as we find in verses uh, 25 and 26, the authority also to prophesy at least for a little time. Verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took of the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the seventy elders. And it happened when the Spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. But two men had remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested upon them. They too were prophesying in the camp. So here we have the Spirit anointing these men and giving to them also, at least temporarily, the gift of prophecy. Which is a gift from God himself. Numbers 24, the passage that we read about Balaam. This is Balaam trying now to resist the work of God, refusing to go and seek God through sacrifices as he had done before, or to use any kind of sorcery against God. He's just going to 
go out there and he's going to speak what's in his mind. He's going to do what Balak wants him to do. He's going to curse Israel. And we read at the end of that verse, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So God took over in Balaam and forced Balaam to speak what he did not want to speak, to speak the very word of God himself and to prophesy good things regarding Israel rather than to bless, to curse them. But notice what he says, Balaam says, in the first words of his prophecy. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and that word utterance is a word in the Old Testament that means prophecy, really. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the Spirit of God has opened his eyes, the utterance of him who hears the words of God from the Spirit of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. And he says the same thing at the beginning of his last prophecy in verses 15 and 16. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. Balaam didn't want to be God's prophet, but nevertheless he spoke the words of God by the power of the Spirit of God in him. Numbers 27, verse 18. Numbers 27, verse 18 is next. This is about Joshua. And Moses appointing Joshua to take his place after he dies. The Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of man with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. And lay your hand on him, set him before Eleazar the priest, and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give him some of your authority, to that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. The Spirit of God coming on Joshua through the laying on of Moses' hands. Now it seems already that the Spirit was in him. It says, God says, that he was a man in whom was the Spirit, and that Moses was then to lay his hands on him. Joshua had already been assisting Moses in a uh, capacity of servant, but now he was to take Moses' place, and therefore God bestows on him additional gifts for that work of taking Moses' place. And Moses laid hands on him as a sign of God's appointment and of the Spirit's coming to him through that appointment. And this is confirmed by Deuteronomy 34, verse 9, the last of the Old Testament passages we're going to be looking at. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. This is Moses talking at the very end of his life. And again, it's connected with Joshua's appointment to take Moses' place. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom. And again, spirit should be capitalized there. For Moses had laid his hands on him. 
So the children of Israel heeded him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And you could go through, of course, the Old Testament and find many, many other passages that speak in this same kind of language. Let's turn now to the New Testament. Now what I want to do in looking at the New Testament is not single out uh, particular books as we did in the Old Testament, but instead look at the Spirit's work first in Christ himself, then in individual believers, and finally in the church. So we're going to divide the discussion in that threefold way. First of all, the Spirit was given to our Lord Jesus Christ. It's something we don't usually pay a lot of attention to, and yet it's a very important part of our Lord's preparation for his ministry. We read in Luke chapter 3 and in some of the other Gospels as well of Jesus' baptism. And in connection with that, Luke 3 verse 22, And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. So the Spirit came upon him at his baptism, anointing him for his work as mediator. And then we read in chapter 4, verse 1 of Luke, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. So he was filled with the Holy Spirit as a result of his baptism, and then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil was leading him and guiding him. And in fact, if you go to Mark chapter 3, verse 12, where Jesus' baptism is also recorded for us, and his tempting, you read there that the Holy Spirit drove him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit compelled him into the wilderness to be tempted. It was by this same Spirit upon him that Jesus taught. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, going just a little bit further down in that same chapter. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He was speaking the word of God by the power of the Spirit in him. And, of course, as he himself says in Matthew 12, verse 28, he was also casting out demons by the power of the Spirit of God. These are divine works that Jesus is doing by the power of the divine Spirit. Matthew 12, verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. We read in Romans 8, verse 11, that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, these words, Hebrews 9, verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Through the eternal spirit in him, our Lord Jesus Christ offered himself to God. These are all divine works that the Holy Spirit is doing in our Lord Jesus Christ then. In believers, we're accustomed to saying, of course, that the whole work of applying the merits of Christ to us, of of giving to us all that Christ has earned for us, belongs to the Spirit. The work of salvation as applied is the work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us, John 3. He sanctifies us, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and helps us to put to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, verse 13. The fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all those other things in Galatians 5, come to us from Him. He enlightens our minds, John 14, verse 17. He raises us from the dead, Romans 8. He is the spirit of adoption for us, Romans chapter 8. He seals us, that is, He is the one who uh, preserves us unto the end, Ephesians 1, verse 17. He is the earnest of our inheritance, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. He gives us access to the Father uh, for, through prayer, Ephesians 2, verse 18. He intercedes for us, Romans chapter 8. And of course, those great chapters of Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16, where we find that he comforts us or helps us or serves as our advocate, however you want to take that word paraclete there in those chapters. All this is divine work. God, through his Spirit, working in us our salvation, as merited for us by his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. But he gives other gifts to us as well. He anoints us to be prophets, priests, and kings. In Christ, that's why we're happy to be called Christians. Peter talks about the gift of prophecy being given to all God's people in Acts 2, verses 17 and 18. He was the one who gave the charismata to the early church, the gifts of speaking in tongues and of healings and of miracles and so on. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. These are not saving works, but they are nevertheless works of the Holy Spirit in some of the believers of the early church. He gave the power to cast out demons. When Jesus said, I cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, he said, if I do that, then how do your sons cast them out? Obviously, by the power of the same Spirit. So he bestows other gifts besides, besides those gifts of salvation. And then we find him working also to uh, accomplish certain things. For example, in Acts chapter 16, we find him directing Paul in his missionary work and teaching him, showing him where to go. Acts 16, verse 6. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. So they wanted to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, don't go there. And then in verse 7, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. 
But the Spirit did not permit them. Again, the Spirit prevented them from doing what they thought they should do. And then Paul, of course, had a vision by the Spirit, though it's not specifically said here, but a vision by the Spirit. The vision appeared to Paul in the night, verse 9. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to us, Macedonia, and help us. And that was then where they went. The Holy Spirit was in all of this, guiding them towards Macedonia. Jesus promised the Spirit to his persecuted disciples so that the Spirit would teach them what to say when they were brought before magistrates and accused falsely. And in Acts chapter 8, verses 29 and 39, we find him also working with Philip, the evangelist. Acts 8, verse 29, first. Acts 8, verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. That's the incident with the Ethiopian eunuch. The Spirit is speaking to him the word of God. Go near and overtake this chariot. And when he's all finished with the Ethiopian eunuch, verse 39, now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. Apparently the Spirit even physically moved him from one place to another. And in fact, you read that in Ezekiel 2. Ezekiel says in one place in his prophecy, the Spirit lifted him up by a lock of his hair and carried him to Jerusalem. Must have been an unusual experience for for Ezekiel. So the Spirit works in individual believers and with individual believers in all these different ways. Then, of course, we have the Spirit's work in the church. He makes her the dwelling place of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the church is the dwelling of God through the Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in her, and therefore she is God's house. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures and made the apostles the foundation of the church by leading them into the truth. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 is another passage. The Holy Spirit is the one who creates the unity of the church, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. We have fellowship, according to Philippians 2, verse 1, in the Spirit. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love. He works in individual believers so that the word of God in their mouths becomes the sword of the Spirit to conquer the enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 6. He guides the worship of the church. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, 
Rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. All these, in all these different ways then that we see God working in his church, but God working by, in his church by his spirit, who is the eternal power and might, who is the spirit of his son, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and in the work of salvation proceeds from the Father and the Son to us, so that we may be filled with that Spirit, and may then be drawn also ultimately into the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one God in three persons, and become partakers, as Peter says, of the divine nature. May God bless his word.